This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and please... If you're hearing us for the first time, hit that subscribe or follow button. And no matter how many times you've heard us, please take 10 seconds, look down at your phone, click on that rate and review button, say something about us, something nice, leave us a rating. It really does help us out. As longtime listeners to the show know, the best professional experience of my life was the decade or so that I spent working on Capitol Hill. I've had the privilege of counseling younger professionals about their careers from time to time. And I always tell them that if they can, they really should check out some time or a full career working as a congressional staffer. One of the main reasons is that you get to meet some truly extraordinary people. And I don't just mean the elected members of Congress, but also the thousands of brilliant, thoughtful, passionate, driven staffers who are the engine of the entire legislative branch in our representative democracy. One of the very finest of these people that I got to encounter in my congressional career is my guest today. Michaeline Kroll was chief of staff to US Senator Bernie Sanders for five years. She was senior advisor to the Bernie 2016 presidential campaign. She built the social media empire that Senator Sanders uses to reach 25 million people each week. As if that wasn't enough, she was legislative director for civil rights icon and one of my personal heroes, John Lewis, for eight years. She's a graduate of Boston University. She has a law degree from Boston University School of Law. She's the mother of two outstanding children. So for my listeners, you can tell just from that brief resume just how delighted I am to get to share some of the insights and experience of Michaeline Kroll. Welcome to be on. Thank you. Happy to well, be here. It's it's delightful to have you. Boy, I, I want to start with some of what's going on right now. Get some of your insights into the action in the Senate and, and in general in government. And then I want to dig a little bit back into some of your fun experiences along the way. So as we record, the $3.5 trillion budget plan, the reconciliation bill, is working its way through Congress, it'll, it's kind of in the on-deck circle, next up to bat. Now, you told me when we were talking off the air that your former boss, Bernie Sanders, has evolved from being a bit more of what you might call an outside agitator to a masterful inside player. What did you mean? What are you seeing that makes you think that? Absolutely. Senator Sanders has always been a student of politics and a student of policy, but he hasn't always pulled the levers of, of legislating uh, as effectively as he, has, he had the potential to. And after years of chairing committees and watching him during this process of reconciliation, I got to be honest, he is absolutely playing this game masterfully. He's very much in concert with President Biden right now. Their relationship couldn't be stronger. They're in constant communication there's obviously with this reconciliation process, it's all of the Democrats coming together to try to make this work. And so to be part of a leadership team that has Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the other side of things, 
you know, he really is working closely with the president to try to make sure that whatever comes out of this package is something that the entire caucus can get behind and that gives Biden a win. So I'm watching him really work with his committee chairman who will end up writing the reconciliation bills that, that come after the budget committee instructs them to do so. And, uh, and that process is, is, like you said, it's on deck and it's about to get moving. And, uh, and I think it's an interesting time to, to have Bernie Sanders in such a significant leadership position. It really is interesting because people think of him as kind of like the guy railing at the rally, but he, he does seem to have sort of hit the sweet spot of tying together a very diverse Democratic coalition and kind of so far keeping them all rowing in the same direction. I, let me ask you kind of a broader extension of that question. So what does it really take to, to pass something in Congress these days? You and I come from a vintage where you passed more stuff. There's actually numbers to support this. We used to pass more bills. Now it's really hard to pass bills. And you observed to me that one key is to keep things out of the partisan vortex that that if you want to get something done it's almost a zen thing it's like you have to try less you have to not make it a big deal and then you can kind of sneak it through john thune the senator the republican senator from south dakota said the other day that right now speaking of the infrastructure bill if you're a republican you want to prove that you're not just here to completely block stop the entire agenda you want to find areas that are good for the country so it seems like there's some energy to do this, as long as you keep things not too high profile, is that is that the key? Is that is that what you have to do? I think that's right. I think I you know I come from a time I actually interned for Ted Kennedy many many years ago when I was just a kid on the Hill, and at that time in the '90s, people really did agree on what the problems were that faced the nation, and there were slight disagreements about how you get there, how you fix it, what the solutions should be, but there was always a compromise, and there was always room to be had to take a step, take a slice, take a half loaf, and not sort of end up in these all or nothing conversations that we're having right now because people really did agree on the direction that the country should be moving. And so I think that the only times that you're really seeing legislation pass, and to your point, it is really hard right now, is when the issues are so straightforward and so broadly supported that everybody, again, agrees that this is something that should be a priority for the country. So we're talking about infrastructure. I think that's something that most people look around on their roads and think, wow, this is really in bad shape. We've avoided this for a long time. You look at uh, China. It was a piece of legislation that moved through the Senate on dealing with China. That's been a Democratic and a Republican, you know, issue that's been really important to folks. And so I think that you really do have to find those sweet spots where you can develop compromise. And someplace where Bernie did that several years back was with John McCain working on veterans legislation. Again, that's another topic where Democrats and Republicans can come together. I think when you get beyond that, it starts to get really hard to find that consensus where what is the problem and then to work backward from how do we then manage differing solutions to answer that problem. So I think this, this infrastructure plan is really exciting and interesting because it's one of the biggest things that I've seen move through the Congress in a long time. And it really has moderates playing an outsized role that they've not played in the past. And so that real wheeling and dealing aspect of the Senate that used to be so prevalent, we're just watching it play out with frankly, with senators who've never played this role before, who've never, who don't really have great examples of having seen it done. So it's a pretty exciting time to be watching 
policymaking happening in the Senate, it's not pretty. The extremes on both sides of the, of the political spectrum don't necessarily find themselves happy with the outcome. But I do think at the end of the day, you'll find both you know, of the political spectrum getting behind these packages because they know that this is an issue that needs to get resolved and it needs to get done. Well, speaking of the extremes not being that happy, I mean, look, Democrats are never that happy, right? It's, it's sort of congenital. It's, it's in our DNA. But you're right. Some of the biggest legislative packages of the last 30 or 40 years, they were pretty bipartisan. I mean, the 1986 Tax Act, which was a watershed for how we do taxes in America, that was Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. You can't get more diametrically opposed political forces working behind the scenes. No Child Left Behind, that was your old boss, Ted Kennedy, working with George W. Bush. I mean, there used to be, if not a political theory that voters would reward you for working together, there was at least the ability to say, all right, it's, it's truce time. It's governing time. We all know what we need to get done. Let's get it done. And as long as then we'll, we'll do the campaigning later. And so it sounds like now, you know, you, you have to, you're campaigning all the time and you can still pass things as long as you're not seen hugging the other side, like Chris Christie found to his chagrin. But speaking of progressives being unhappy, the more extreme sides of the party being unhappy, I have a question for you. I mean, no one has more insights into the progressive wing of the Democratic Party than you do. Should progressives be feeling bummed right now? Because on the one hand, what you're hearing is the infrastructure bill isn't enough. Voting reform isn't enough. Healthcare coverage is not enough. On the other hand, look, I mean, 13 million American children have been lifted out of poverty because of the earlier budget bill we passed. Huge amounts in this upcoming infrastructure bill for energy and resiliency and transit, cost caps in the last round of legislation for people getting their healthcare through the exchanges. We're closing the digital divide with 65 billion for broadband. I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that progressives really should like happening right now. So how should they be feeling? Like behind the scenes, are they really bummed or are they sort of posturing as a negotiating tactic? You know, I think you've got the talking points exactly right. If they were smart, I think those are the ones that they'll, they should be using and those are the ones that they will eventually use. And frankly, I think Bernie Sanders, when he looks at it, he does think that what has already happened in the Biden administration is some of the most progressive policy that we have seen in the United States in decades. And so it's a really exciting time for us to, to have that piece. I do think that there are some folks in the progressive wing of the party who are not happy and they are playing a really important role and a, a role that Bernie had played for a long time and continues to play, which is to say, look, we should have a $6 billion reconciliation package and it should include all of our top priorities. And that's a really important place to be because if you don't push the envelope and get people to envision exactly what, um, what can happen, you're not going to, you're not going to get sort of the half loaf that I think makes a lot of sense for folks. So I think that progressives right now are continuing to agitate and they're continuing to push the envelope. I think that they will ultimately be happy with much of what comes out of this package. I think that there will be a lot left on the table that they will wish happened, including environmental issues that may get left by the wayside. But I do think to your point of lifting folks out of poverty, it's been extremely significant. And if those tax credits can be made permanent, I think that will be huge. What about the other side of the coin? Now, you, despite having, I mean, as much liberal street cred as any human being out there, 
you're not actually a super partisan person. I've known you for a long time. You're you're not yourself super partisan. And I mean, look, your your husband's a Republican, right? I mean, he's another outstanding professional. You know, you guys are like a powerhouse. You're like the the, the modern version of Carvel and Madeline, but but smarter. I, you work with Republicans all the time, very closely behind the scenes. What's really going on? Are they as dismayed about the Trump effect on their party as Democrats are? Are they are they bumped out about the big lie, the insurrection, and do they see a way out? Are they are they kind of hoping that that we're going to we're going to move past this or are they kind of have they kind of bought all in on it? Yeah, I think for the most part, people who've been in Washington for a long time, Republicans that I that I know and like and trust and work with all the time, I think they are somewhat dismayed. I mean, look, you, you deal with the the party that's in power, you deal with the person that's in power and you make the most of it and you you push your priorities forward while you've got your party's president in the White House. And I think that's what happened over the last four years. At this point, I get the sense that Republicans are ready to turn the page writ large. However, in those congressional districts where he is overwhelmingly still the most important factor in Republican politics, it is really hard to, to get separated from that and to, to find some distance between the, the rhetoric that Trump uses and the rhetoric that the constituents that are now using. So I think you'll find that it's, it's become a really challenging place for elected officials to be in particular because they are pandering to a, uh, a new type of constituency that they've not had to deal with before. And they're not motivated by the same general Republican principles that others had been motivated by in the past. And so playing the normal games of politics don't really work anymore. So I think from the staff perspective, and I generally have worked with Republican chiefs of staff who, who are my friends and my neighbors and my, my, my children's friends, parents, you know, we all look at this process and say, look, we have to legislate and we have to get things done. And I, I think for a lot of, there's, there's just a lot of static in the background that makes their jobs really challenging to do right now. So I have a lot of empathy for what they're going through. And I, I think they're, that's going to take a little longer for the party to work through that process. Obviously, the Democratic Party has had its own growing pains with the progressives. And I think that there was a lot of hyperbole out there and people were trying to really figure out what is going to happen. And now we're going to go too far to the left and socialism and all the rest of it. You know, we've been dealing with charges of socialism since Medicare and Social Security and, and other major social democratic programs that have tried to pass. So I, I don't see that as being an, a new thing. But I, but I do think that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party had principles that they were able to rely on that had their roots in the in the old school democratic principles of governing. And I think that the Trump era has presented for Republicans a challenge because he is very much outside of their normal scope of uh, limited government and uh, limited spending some of the tax breaks and some of the other things that happened during the Trump administration just are, are different than what you'd seen in the past. And, and I think that there's a challenge that's happening there. There's always been a challenge for both parties to navigate with the most rabid elements of their base. I think for Republicans for the last quarter century or so, it's been a little easier. That's, that's my perception is, look, you're never going to go wrong being a little bit more conservative as a Republican, that's the element of your base you need to, you need to deal with. For Democrats, 
you've got like all kinds of different mixtures in your in your base coalition. So it's been tougher. But it does seem like that that basic entry price, the ante you have to pay to be part of the game has gotten higher. It's gotten tougher. Let me actually turn that into a question. Is that the big difference? What what what's changed about working in politics and being a politician since you and I were working together in Congress 15 or 20 years ago? I think a lot of things have changed. I think, first of all, the the media cycles are constant. People have to react to things before they really have had time to digest them. The, the prevalence of social media and the need to be a part of a conversation immediately, again, gives very little time to consult with colleagues and people across the aisle about you know what, what are the major issues here and to think thoughtfully about a process. There are microphones being put in people's faces before they've even had a chance to figure out what has happened. And so I think that is a, a real issue. I also feel like the changes in the governing process have really made a big difference in in you know how we have operated in Washington, we used to have they call it now congressionally directed spending uh, earmarks. We used oh. to have, uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> that euphemism. They have the ability for um, members of Congress to direct the spending, which is a constitutionally uh, you know something that the Constitution has basically given to the Congress, which they've ceded over years to the executive branch. And there was never a problem with a member of Congress saying my district needs a road more than it needs a school. And my district needs a, an after school program more than it needs some other piece of spending. And so there, it, there should be a role for members of Congress to play in that. And that gave them a really big stake in legislating. And so those, those opportunities to make compromises and to say, okay, I'm gonna get something and my constituents are gonna get something really important and I will give in on some other thing that's not important to my rural state, but it's important to your urban district. And so there's not a lot of, I would say, greed to, to make this process a lot more smooth. It's now very, there's a lot of conflict that's happening and there's, there's nothing that's greasing those skids. Another thing is that, you know, people don't live here anymore. Members of Congress hop on planes, they go home, they spend a lot of their time raising money. That's a huge disincentive to spend time with colleagues who are different from you and who, you know, otherwise in years and decades past would have gone to school, their kids would have gone to school together and they would have met on the soccer fields together. And we do still see a little bit of that. But I, I think that that life has changed so much for these members of Congress that it's it's really hard for them to see each other as human beings and to have those relationships that say Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch had, I mean, they'd beat the daylights of each, out of each other on the Senate floor. And then afterward, they were friends. They were the oddest couple of friends, but they really had a respect for each other and, and a friendship with each other. And I, I don't think you see that as much these days. Although, like I said, at the beginning of the conversation, I, I think we're seeing some legislators in the making with this G20 group that are working on infrastructure and they're giving new meaning to getting to know each other and working together and trying to solve common problems. So I remain always hopeful <laughs> that we can turn the page on some of the vitriol that we've seen. But you and I know when we started to work together every year, I would say it can't get any worse. It can't get any worse. And then when you and I spoke recently, it's about as bad as I've seen it. <laughs> so that said, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be learned from the current processes that we're watching right now between these moderates. And uh... you were pointing to social media. You were pointing to the glare of the public spotlight. 
And the ability of anything you say or do, even before you've had a chance to think about it, it's like, it's like time warp type stuff. Something happens and before it's fully stopped happening, you need to say something about it. And you just know that there's going to be catastrophizing online about what you just said. I wanna ask you about that exact thing. One of the things I noted in the intro to the show is that you had a major hand in building what I call the social media empire, certainly one of the most prolific and impactful social media presences in politics, that of Senator Bernie Sanders. And I have for a long time been really worried about the impact of social media and the way we fundraise and communicate with the grassroots in both parties and what that's doing to our democracy. Now, look, these things are incredibly complex, but in my mind, it's no coincidence that in 2009, Twitter introduced the retweet. In 2012, Facebook played catch up and introduced the share feature. And then by 2016, look, 2016 was the year that seemed to break politics in many ways. You are an expert in communication, social media communication, the, the intersection of those platforms with politics. How worried are you? Have we unleashed something technologically on society with too many unintended consequences? And are there ways to put that toothpaste back in the tube? Or am I just stressed about nothing? Well, it's interesting. I, I look at this a little bit differently. Bernie Sanders was someone who would go on any television show that he was asked to, whether it was Fox News or the cable radio shows or the cable television shows, he, he would go on anywhere he was asked, but often he wasn't asked. And to break into mainstream media is very, very challenging. And so for someone who had such a different view of what was gonna happen out in the world and to get that view out into mainstream press was really, really challenging. And so he really used every tool at his disposal. And it started with long form emails that he would write on a yellow legal pad and, and blast out to his hundreds of thousands of followers. And then when social media became a thing, he just took to it like a duck to water. He knew that there was an ability to reach people who were thirsty for content that you otherwise couldn't find. So I think that the 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 trajectory that Bernie Sanders was able to to follow is different because you know these social platforms have changed a lot. The ability to movement build the way that he did doesn't really exist anymore unless you're putting paid advertising behind it. So there was a democratization of those platforms back then that he was really able to take advantage of that doesn't exactly exist today. So if you're trying to replicate what Bernie Sanders did, it's not going to work. They there are there are ways that they have made this process more difficult for you that you've, you've now got to pay to have people really see what you're doing online. So I think that from, from first place, I, I operate from the place of, no, I actually don't think these things are a bad thing. Do I think that we need to really rethink what our lives are like and whether there's a, whether there's a limit to these things and whether there should be a limit on them or whether this should be something that is, again, more democratized? Maybe. You know, there are ways that we can look at these, these programs, but at the end of the day, we never expected them to become the all-encompassing you know, entities in our lives and the way that people share information. There's such a danger right now with misinformation and with people sharing things that are, that are detrimental. I mean, you, you, there are 
First Amendment conversations that are happening all the time. You're not allowed to scream fire in a crowded room. How do we translate that idea to the internet and to these social media platforms so that we protect public health and that we protect people online, and we protect young people online. And so I think that there's a lot of work being done in the policy sphere. But again, this is a place where Republicans are saying, you're censoring me and Democrats are saying, let's protect kids online. And so, you know, nobody has really figured out how to uh, address the next layer of what is the internet and how do we use it for, for, for good. But I do think that there's an ability to share information like never before. And I think Sanders was really somebody who was able to, to see it as a huge tool he used it beautifully. There were days where he was writing tweets and I was like, Senator, you can't be writing tweets. You have, you've got 10 things to do. You've got committee, you know, chairmanship responsibilities and other things. But he knew that he, if he was not communicating effectively with the people who were listening and who were thirsty for his message, that he was missing an opportunity. So I really feel like it's, it's something that you, we, we're not going to squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube. We are going to have to deal with this going forward. It does give smaller, you know, people who otherwise wouldn't have access to, you know, television advertising or to other more expensive forms of communication, the ability to reach audiences that they, they wouldn't, which does complicate things for insiders, for people who've held public office for a long time. But I don't actually think that that's a bad thing. I think it's a, not a bad thing for democracy to have people being able to express themselves. And, and I think we just have to make sure that our, we're teaching civics and that people understand how to parse information and how to make sure that they're not being taken in by, by misinformation. So I think on the, on the one side, you see a real benefit, but on the flip side, you see people like Trump utilizing it for, for you know, goals that I don't agree with and that are that lead to insurrections at the Capitol that I think are, are really uh, problematic and, and just people believing things that absolutely would have been confined to conspiracy theories that are now widespread held beliefs because of, of how things spread on the internet. So um, yeah. it's, it's a fair perspective. And what it, what it prompts for me is a few things. One, Follow me at Matt L. Robeson on Twitter. I mean, you know, if you if you want actual factual information about politics and government, not a bad source because I get the straight dope from people like you. Number two, my goodness, the image of Bernie Sanders writing long form the emails and tweets on a yellow legal pad. Larry David is probably, you know, somewhere tenting his fingers and and Larry did did you were you able to to avoid dying of laughter when he first started doing that on Saturday Night Live? Was it stunningly accurate? And, and, and how did Bernie feel about it? He was perfect. And Bernie loved it. Bernie thought that it was hilarious. And in fact, they were on Saturday Night Live together at one point. Bernie was terribly sick. He had got a cold and he was on Saturday Night Live. He, they, had the, they had the best time. And what a funny, funny thing. And he, he said to me one time, you know, it's great. Larry David's great. I can be in two places at once. I mean, the <laughs> Love- idea of, my favorite was in his pocket with a comb, some loose change and a button. Cause you never know. It's like, you know what? Not only is that kind of accurate with, with, with my image of Bernie Sanders, it's also like every old Jewish uncle that I have in my family, just absolutely fantastic. John Lewis, I mean, you worked for one of the most famous noteworthy heroic figures in the history of the US Congress that's saying something What's your favorite John Lewis story? John Lewis was 
someone who could not walk past a group of kids. We would be late for an important vote and he would be walking briskly. The man was not tall and he could out, you know, out sprint me in a minute, but he would walk past a group of kids and it would be like going past a, a, a bowl of candy. He couldn't stop himself from talking to these kids. So that is my favorite thing about John Lewis is that he had a special connection with kids and my daughter, my son had the blessing of growing up in that office and, and knowing him and being able to call him when they had a Black History Month question or saying, you know, what was Rosa Parks like? And he would tell them that, you know, as you do in your second grade essay, quoting John Lewis, the civil rights legend. So, you know, they had an interesting childhood, but I love that he took, he never took himself seriously, but he took his role in history extremely seriously. And he always felt like sharing it with young people was so important. And one other story I'll tell you is that he, he made such a point of answering constituent mail because when he was a kid, he wrote a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and, and got a response. And he, he credits that with the turning point in his career and in his life and his being called what he calls, but called by the spirit of history. And so, you know, those, those relationships with constituents and people that wrote to him were so important to him. He was a really special human being and I, I miss his presence on this planet. And, and I, I was really blessed to have worked for him. My goodness. You know, my kids like to make fun of my age by asking questions like, what was it like to know Jesus who was in your high school <laughs> class, but your kids could actually ask John Lewis, what was Rosa Parks like? I mean, my goodness. I, I actually remember when, when we were working, I think we were going to head off to lunch one day and you invited me to just step into the congressman's office. I, I'd never seen the inside of his office. It was like stepping into a museum of some of the great and, and painful, but, but great moments in American history, the pictures on, on his wall. I was just, I was floored. And then of course he walked in. And I mean, for anyone who's interested in what the inside of my mouth looks like, my jaw hit the floor. I, you know, I just, I, working in Congress, there were very few people who I was starstruck by he was someone I was starstruck by. I, I, I just, there, there's not a, a secret. I'll, I'll tell you a secret. Senator Ted Kennedy was starstruck by John Lewis as well. Really? They had, they had a very special friendship and I got to work with both of them on the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act back in 2006, which at that time was a bipartisan endeavor. It is no longer the case, but they had a special uh, love and friendship for each other. And, and for someone as historic as Ted Kennedy was to say that John Lewis was probably the most important member of Congress in his lifetime was really saying something. That is, that is really saying something, you know, just following up on, on this thought, it, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned Ted Kennedy. I mean, you've worked for the most identifiable liberal lions in the Senate, and you've also worked for the most prominent, well-known Black American leader, I guess with the exception of President Obama, in our, in our lifetime, in our generation. And we are just on the heels of a, a closely watched special election in Ohio, where uh, Chantel Brown defeated Nina Turner. It was widely viewed as sort of a, a contest of the Black Democratic establishment versus a more progressive vein of, of, of Black leadership. 
And, you know, it, it was sort of seen within the Congressional Black Caucus as a test of sort of new school, old school, and where that particular group is going. Is, are there tea leaves to be read there about the direction of, I mean, look, let's face it, the core, the, the, the spine, the backbone, the beating heart, pick an anatomical metaphor of the Democratic Party is African-Americans and particularly African-American women. So in this contest, do you think there are tea leaves to be read about the direction and, and positioning of Black Democrats within the party and what's resonating with that, that core segment? Or is this sort of just a, a one-off and, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't over-tilt on it? I think there's a lot to be to be thought about in that context, but I think for years there's always been a, a tug in the Congressional Black Caucus. What does the Black Caucus think is one of those questions that I get as a consultant. And if you've talked to one member of the Congressional Black Caucus, you've talked to one member of the Congressional Black Caucus. They are not a monolithic caucus and they do not have monolithic issues and agendas and cares. And so while there is an importance in their representation in the Congress, and while I know John Lewis was proud of the, the numbers of Black Americans that are serving in the Congress, the reality is that there are so many differences in the, in the, the districts that they represent that it's hard to extrapolate one race uh, versus another. So I think when you're looking at it from a the, the, the national level in some of these Senate races, maybe there's something more to be drawn there. But I actually think our country is so different and the members of the Black Caucus come from so many different types of, of, of districts that I think it's hard to extrapolate further from there. And on that theme, it was recently reported that the group Our Revolution, which sprang out of the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign, you're very familiar with them, is refocusing its agenda as more of a, an advocacy group for what you might call mainstreamed progressive priorities, basically advocating for the Joe Biden agenda. And in reporting on it, Politico opined that this was sort of the same track that other advocacy groups that have come out of presidential campaigns have followed. They kind of mature, they, they sort of get incorporated in, as just part of the mainstream constellation of democratic advocacy groups. Is that what's happening here? Or do you think that there's a more fundamental recalibration going on on the progressive left? Well, interestingly, Nina Turner was the person who ran our revolution for a good long time, and she was a surrogate during the 16 campaign. So I did get to know her quite well. I think that there is a, a hope in some portions of the progressive left that progressive politics will simply just again become the nature of what the democratic party stands for and so given what the biden administration has already done and the fact that they've listed so many kids out of poverty and the fact that they've really been successful in expanding some of those social programs that have languished for so long i think there is generally a hope that the party itself, at least on the side of the progressives, uh, there is a hope that the, that the party is moving more toward a progressive, a progressive bent. And so to the extent that there are activist folks out there that are pushing the envelope, I think there's a really important role for them to play. I'm not entirely sure the, the future on, on, on this organization, but 
without, you know, Bernie Sanders was never going to be the head of some alternative party. He was always going to operate with, within the frame of pushing the Democrats to do the, the best that they can. If there's another generation of progressives that come up and, and have a different idea about that, it'll be interesting to watch. But I think it's been fun to, to see the, the Democratic Party really look closely at what Bernie's been saying and give new life to some of these old principles of society and how we all help each other and how we do work together. You have worn many hats in your career. One of the most interesting is that you are, in a sense, Hillary Clinton. I mean, in a very, in a very real palpable sense. So in, in politics and presidential campaigns, especially, but I've had this experience in congressional Senate races, you have to prepare for debates and someone has to play the role of the opponent. And it's, it's not easy. You, you frequently, you physically try and get into character. It's a little bit like being an actor, you know, you, you, you study up on them and you get the facial mannerisms and the, the, the cadences of speech. I, again, I, this is something I've done as part of debate prep. A lot of people in, in Politico type roles have done this, but you did it at the highest level. You have been Hillary Clinton in debate prep for Bernie Sanders. What was it like? And what did you learn? It was very intimidating because I have a lot of respect for her and I have a, a lot of admiration for her. I, my job was to be the worst version of her possible and to provoke Senator Sanders, who is not a shrinking violet and is not somebody who's known for, for being calm under pressure. And so my job was to provoke the worst in him and to be the worst version of her that I could be. I had wonderful folks who put together amazing talking points for me and great briefing books and the ability to really be prepared. And I think it took until maybe the third debate that Bernie realized that he didn't have a script in front of him. I don't know whether he just thought I was brilliant and able to come up with all of this stuff on my own or what. But I said, Senator, you don't get a script when you're up on the stage. So sorry, my friend, but members of Congress and certainly presidential candidates, they do not like to be told by their staff that they should do something better or differently. And so it's a really challenging position to be in. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of pressure, but it was one of the best experiences I've, I've ever had in, in, in politics. And I, I learned that Senator Sanders is really a masterful debater on his own, just in general. And one of the things that we had a really hard time with was that you could not script him. You could, you, the, even if you wanted to, scripting him was not possible. What you heard coming out of his mouth was exactly what he believed every time. And that was what made him so authentic, I think, in that process. So who's the best Hillary Clinton? Amy Poehler, Kate McKinnon, you, who, who, who really nailed it? I think Amy Poehler was pretty awesome. I think Amy, you know, I, I have a challenge for our radio and podcast listeners out there. Go back, especially if you're on podcast. You can't do this if you're listening on the radio, especially if you're in your car. So don't do this. But if you're on podcast, and especially if you're on a mobile device, just, just hit that rewind button for about a minute or two back and see if you can detect a change. Michaeline, I swear that you sounded much more like Hillary in, in, in your answer to that last question. I think you subconsciously put the voice on. I really do. Or it's, or it's natural. You, you've never talked to... Senator Secretary Clinton about that experience. You've, you've never exchanged anything about it, I assume. No, no. Well, fair enough. I, a, a future conversation to be had. Um, looking forward to the future. I mean, look, Senator Sanders is obviously 
super active, super in the midst of things right now. And as you say, playing a masterful role. But you know, we've alluded a couple of times to sort of the future of. I don't think I don't think it's too much to say uh, the movement that he has led within the Democratic Party and on the progressive left for decades now. And it's not crazy to kind of look forward to the future. A lot of the media assumes that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is sort of the natural next leader of that segment of the party. Is that is that the case? You know, I, I think it'll depend on 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 people who are coming into this movement. It is diffuse and it is not organized like a party is. And 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 I don't think Bernie ever really wanted to do that. He he knew that he was an older guy, that this was going to be something that was handed on to another generation. I think he has a lot of respect and admiration for Casio Cortez. And I think that she is has been very bright and she herself has been masterful in the way that she's used her positions to to move the conversation forward. You know, she suffers from something Bernie doesn't, which is being a woman and being underestimated and being young. And so, you know, I think that she's not taken as seriously as as others would have. I can identify with that experience over the course of my life. And so I am always impressed by her that she she's never cowed by any anyone around who who wants to underestimate her and I wouldn't underestimate her. But I do think she is 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 becoming quite a leader and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether sort of get subsumed into a democratic party that seems more aligned with where the progressives are or whether this takes on a, a role where there needs to be a, a progressive party that, that comes out of this. So it, it's hard to tell what the future is, but I think that the, the signs right now are that we can play as progressives within the um, democratic infrastructure and actually do quite well. It does seem like that's the case. And I'm, I, I don't know, I, I've watched her very closely. I, I was always a fan of Joe Crowley, who she succeeded. I was close with with his staff actually he was on this show a few weeks ago and i have to say i i've been he was sort of the consummate inside player and i've been interested to see if she will follow the same evolution that you just noted in your former boss bernie sanders well known as being a bit more of an outside player who commanded a a big public bullhorn and then working one's way into becoming more of a masterful inside operator. I do want to acknowledge a point that you raised, which is as much as I've sometimes personally strategically disagreed with the direction that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has set for the party in terms of communications and messaging and strategy, I, I think I, I join hopefully most people in applauding her grit, tenacity, intelligence, moxie. It's not easy. It's super duper not easy as a woman, as you state. And you, Michaeline Kroll, are, I think, a role model, especially for young professionals who want to get into public policy, want to get into government. And it's it's just been absolutely a pleasure working with you, talking to you. And for folks out there who are wondering, you know, look, can you, can you follow this kind of a path? I, I guarantee you, not everyone is as brilliant as you are, but if you work at it, you can have this kind of a career. Michaeline Kroll, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. It was great talking with you. 